You're listening to the Sill Podcast Perspectives on Art and Technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 47 The Undefinable Spirit Fearless in the Face of Misfortune. Good afternoon, Michelle, and uh, thanks for speaking with me today. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Unfortunately, my co-host, Harry, was detained and won't be joining us. I'll be asking you some questions that we both have. You and I spoke briefly on the phone the other day in order to set up this interview. And in the article that you sent us, written about you, it began with, to paraphrase John Lennon, Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans, which pretty much describes your journey. That's true. You consider yourself a social and environmental activist. You support all the arts, and uh, you're an admitted Facebook maniac, which we'll come back to. What I want to get onto is your story. Mm. Your father, only 43 at the time, died suddenly of pancreatic cancer when you were 13, leaving you with your mother, who had a bipolar disorder, and your seven-year-old brother. Have you thought about how your life would have been different if he had lived? Definitely, I have. The biggest difference, I think, is that I would have gone to university. Mm. But upon reflection, I'm just as glad that I didn't, because at that age, if I had graduated, I probably would have become an ivory tower snob. That's who you were at the time? Yes. I was very keen on things being spelled properly, for example. Give myself a kind of shake if I saw things misspelled. And that's just a little example. But in the meantime, I'm more interested in actual communication, and it doesn't matter if something's misspelled. It's more important to get the message across or Mm -hmm. understand the message. Mm -hmm. And also, when I went into my first full-time job, I was using all my best vocabulary. But, you know, if people don't understand the words, what's the point? Simple language. Exactly. It's better to use language that everyone understands. And there are times when you want to use those other words in different situations, but perhaps not in daily speak. Exactly. So when were you first diagnosed with MS? How did you take that Mm. news? And what did you do with that knowledge inwardly? Mm. Well, I was tentatively diagnosed when I was in my early 30s. And I, well, happily, part of the prognosis was that there could be 20 years where I would be symptom-free. And so I was like, okay. And as a matter of fact, we can forget about it in 20 years too. Thank Mm. you very much. Mm -hmm. But sure enough, 20 years later, symptoms did reappear. My understanding also is that about nine years ago, your MS came back with a vengeance. Uh, What were you thinking when this relapse happened? And how did you cope with this new development? Mm, Well, I guess in almost a healthy way, I was Uh, in denial, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until my mobility got so poor that I couldn't deny it anymore. You said almost in a healthy way. Well, because I just kept going, MS or not, I'm just going to keep on going. And then I did eventually go to a neurologist again, 
and then took advantage of physiotherapists and occupational therapists. Mm -hmm. Your human spirit has been a big part of your healing process, hasn't it? Definitely. For my form of MS, there is no medication anyway. Mm. And what form would that be? It's called progressive multiple sclerosis. What's the longer-term prognosis? What happens? Well, my physical abilities will diminish over time. And maybe in fits and starts, perhaps I'll have long plateaus where I'm in pretty good shape. Oh, and there, there could be an episode where I am less able, but then I also get able again. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's no predicting. But one important factor is stress. Which affects healthy people just as badly. Exactly. And in often mysterious ways. Mm -hmm. Seemingly yes. mysterious. Do you think you've encountered some of these episodes already? Mm, definitely. For example, at the beginning of this year, I had a little bit of a cold or maybe a little bit of the flu. Mm. And my legs completely gave out. And therefore, I did go to the hospital and found out I had pneumonia. The good thing is, I never would have known I had pneumonia. I would have just thought it was the cold or a flu. But as I recovered from, well, it took a long time to recover from the pneumonia. Mm -hmm. But then my mobility came back. And your younger brother has MS. Mm. Well, his was much more dramatic. And he right away went to the hospital, and he got a good neurologist very quickly, luckily, and he was prescribed steroids, which he injects daily. Wow. He can still continue to work, and his prognosis was that in five years he'd be in a wheelchair, but he's still going strong. He no longer walks recreationally. Now, is that in part due to the steroids? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So basically, he gave up one thing to gain another. Yes. And I guess he's not that concerned about the longer-term effects of the steroids, given his position. Exactly, now that they were so effective. So he has been compromised by the steroids, but it's an option that he'd rather have. Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, I think that's important for people uh, listening to know that, because I think a lot of people have great difficulty in making medical decisions in that regard. Yeah. Your mother at uh, 87 and yes. still with you. How is she faring and how does she figure in your life, past and present? Well, she's figured very prominently. I was very much in touch with her over the years. And actually, I took on a caregiver role with my mother very early in life. And definitely after my father passed away, mm -hmm. uh, she basically fell apart and I took over. I started working full-time when I was 18 to uh, pay off the house and pay off her debts mm -hmm. and look after my brother and her, food <laughs> and everything. Basic necessities. And, yep, the whole works. But luckily, I got a very well-paying job with benefits, so we were able to do it. What's your relationship with your mother like? Well, it's been trying. Uh, she doesn't really listen to me <laughs> and just does her own thing anyway, for better, for worse, and ultimately could no longer stay in touch with her daily because it was too difficult for me. Mm -hmm. 
luckily, really, over the years, my brother and I have taken turns taking care of her. It just happened this way, that I took care of her for a decade, and then he took care of her for a decade, and then back and forth, and it looks like he's getting the last decade. And would you say, though, that uh, your own experience in recent years, or let's say the last decade or two, has it changed the way you deal with your mother because of your own experience? Yes. Well, for one thing, I have, uh, at one point, I started taking my own advice that I usually gave my mom. It wasn't doing any good anyway. Like, she didn't listen to any of my advice. Mm -hmm. But I started using the advice that I like to give her on myself. Is it working? Yeah. You've tried several therapies for your MS symptoms, one of which was magnetic resonance stimulation therapy. Have you tried other treatments? Well, the only other thing that I've done that I found effective was taking probiotics. Ah. And before you describe probiotics, could you give just a brief rundown on what magnetic resonance stimulation is? Okay. So it's a mat that has wiring inside of it. And it's attached to a device that you can control how powerful and how long you're going to lie on the mat. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to simulate the magnetic resonance of the Earth. Like the magnetic field. Exactly. How do you find it? After three weeks of lying on the mat three times a day for 15 minutes, it became obvious that I was getting better. And so I did continue, and it did make me be able to walk better. Did you ever discuss this with any of your doctors? Yes, I did. And what kind of a response did you get? Uh, a polite nod. <laughs> Almost like, sure, whatever. Yep. But yep. your experience speaks to the contrary. Yep. What led you to becoming, well, essentially homeless during the past year? Mm, because I moved in to a house that was owned by somebody I had dated previously. Mm -hmm. And so he became my landlord. And as I got better and better, he, like he was verbally and emotionally abusive, but I could handle that. But as I got better, he became physically abusive. And that's when I left without a plan or without any money. But you had the wherewithal to do that. Well, I did have support. His sister knew what was happening, and she said to me, we got to get you out of there sooner rather than later. And so she picked me up in her car, and we actually had already made an arrangement that I would look after her father for a weekend. Mm -hmm. And so that was all, like, seemed completely normal to my abuser until I didn't come back. Box, box. So, what's your story? The first sign of mental illness is denial. <laughs> Be proud when you go to the airport and they go, do you have any baggage? You go, you have no idea. <laughs> See that stuff floating around on there? Some of that's my mother's, but I carry it with me anyway. <laughs> and I'm talking mostly to the men in the audience because women have a support group. It's called women. I love the way you work. Look at the way she's dressed like that there. I cannot believe she's wearing a shirt two sizes too small. Walking through the mall, her boobies just hanging out like that. I cannot believe she's just flaunting around like, oh, she's crying. Are you okay? <laughs> oh, come here. No. Re 
he said, he's an asshole, that one. <laughs> yeah, let's go buy a new shirt. Because, <laughs> man, we can't even focus on our own emotions, let alone those of our friends, eh? You walk in, you want to go fishing? I'm really sad. I'll see you tomorrow. Fox, <laughs> Fox. The journey continues and it's difficult. And at the risk of getting too personal, have you ever been depressed to the point of being suicidal? Yes. And ironically, it happened after I had that vision that I described to you after my appendix burst. Mm-hmm. But I think it also made it easier for me to decide to attempt suicide because I knew that the afterlife was not a bad thing. When you talk about the afterlife, briefly describe that experience you had. Okay, so after my appendix burst and I got home from the hospital and I had my first proper meal in a week, I uh, just fell back against my pillows. I had... um, let me shut that We'll up. take a break for technology. <laughs> yep. Okay. Go ahead. We're good. Okay. So I had my dinner in bed, and then I fell back on my cushions and closed my eyes. And then I had this, it was like a whoosh. And I went up in a kind of stream of light up to this Milky Way of sparks, which I understood to be every spark was like a soul. And it was a very warm, loving, and harmonious feeling. Mm, like a sparkle you would see at a fireworks display? Yeah, just one little spark. Every, <laughs> Those little handheld sparkles. Exactly. Got it. And you actually experienced that. It's mm-hmm. very clear in your mind. Oh, yeah. Unforgettable. And how did that change you? Well, it made me unafraid of dying. Which obviously completely changed the way you look at your life. It's true. It's made you able to, how should I say, open up all your chakras. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, And how significant is your spiritual core in your approach to daily living? Well, at this point, everything that I've gone through and overcome or lived through, oh, plus, I have to say, I am on medication for bipolar. Okay. So I know I have to take it because, like, when I ran away from my abusive landlord, I didn't take my medication with me. And I did become manic. Mm -hmm. So after a while, I did get my medication back and then stabilized again. But now I can look back and I definitely enjoyed those manic times, but Mm -hmm. I don't (laughs) want to repeat them. Right. But at least you have a certain awareness. And what I like is that I had a father who had serious mental issues, including bipolar and other things, would say, I'm not expert enough to give details, but I know what I experienced. My father, as a young boy, I watched him go through shock treatments. And then, of course, later in Mm. life, lithium was the go-to drug, an assortment of other things. So I understand basically what you're talking about. What I admire in listening to you is the fact that you've adopted a kind of mixed bag approach. You're not limiting yourself to any one thing and you're seeing the significance or the importance of your diet, your way of thinking, your daily activity, your state of mind, your diminishment of stress and so on. That's what I find particularly interesting. Well, you know, I watched my mother go through the whole bipolar thing Mm -hmm. and also shock treatments 
And for me, what I was also very lucky, I think, that I ended up in a psychiatric ward where they actually kept me longer than I needed to be there because they Mm -hmm. were concerned about my landlord. Mm -hmm. I hadn't figured all that out yet. And so they were really able to get me on the right medication and the right dosage. Mm -hmm. So the two things were working hand in hand. There was a holistic approach and there was a medical approach. They were working together. True. Uh, Now, one of the things I did notice is that despite all your limitations, or at least apparent limitations, you obviously don't feel them the same way other people see them. You're pretty busy on Facebook. Uh, You're uploading to what I see as Rebel Art Radio, and you've also adapted to using your smartphone. How has technology kept you connected to the outside world as your own mobility becomes increasingly challenging? It's crucial. I also, when I went to uh, Mexico in 1999, and I just got onto the internet just before I left, it was crucial uh, against loneliness to ah. be able to stay in touch with people. Mm-hmm. So just basic interaction. Exactly. And what has evolved since then? Oh, well, since then, it's important to me as an environmental and social activist to mm-hmm. keep awareness up about what's happening around these issues and sharing with other people And also, a few years ago, I was able to rally 30 people to appear in front of David Tilson's office Mm -hmm. to protest against GMO alfalfa. And that was with basically Facebook and email. And how successful was that? It was successful. (laughs) And we even (laughs) raised the awareness of the policeman that was there to make sure that traffic and pedestrian flow was maintained. You've called yourself a dirty hippie and a punk at different times in your life. What do you mean by that? Well, I was born in 62, so I grew up with the hippies on TV and around me, although I was in suburban Bramalee, like at the mall where there was a row of trees near the creek. Mm-hmm. There would be, like, these hippie-dressed people lounging under the trees in the afternoon. Yeah. And people going barefoot and all of this and all of the culture of the 60s. Sure. I'm a little older than you, but I remember it well. Yeah. Yeah. So into everything. And uh, I was very keen on the uh, principles that socialist hippies were promoting. Yes. A lifestyle. And also... I was a keen reader when I was a kid, and very early on, I was admiring of indigenous principles. Mm. You mean things like Indians that live for 10,000 years without a problem until the white man comes and disrupts everything in 50 years? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do you still pursue that? Definitely. Yep. And because of Facebook, I'm able to keep up with all of these streams. And what's your current passion? Well, my current passion is to get a men's shelter in Orangeville because we have a youth shelter and we have a women's shelter that also takes their children in. But we do not have a men's shelter. And I think there's a direct link to the women's shelter always overflowing Mm -hmm. and there not being a men's shelter and resource center. And how did you come to that conclusion? Did you speak to other people about it? 
Well, people spoke to me. I was uh-huh. uh, quite, I guess, pleasantly surprised that without me soliciting their opinions or thoughts, many people would say, and you know what? We don't have a men's shelter in Orangeville. And I'm like, okay, I got to get a fire under some butts. We got to get a men's <laughs> shelter in Orangeville. So right. that's my main passion right now. So you said that people came to you unsolicited. For anyone else that might be interested in speaking to you, how would people get in touch with you? On Facebook. But I can also be reached by email. Could also be reached by phone. Would you care to give any of that information out? Yep. Well, on Facebook, I'm under Michelle Front. Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E. Front is F as in Frank, R-U-E. N as in Nancy, D as in Donald, T as in Thomas. And on email, I'm at michellefront at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Yes. Got it. And what would you like people to know about you or what it takes to be you? (laughs) Well, let's start basic. Sure. Once I felt, I guess, at loose ends... And I spoke with my brother, and my brother said, you know, Michelle, I have my hands full with mom and my girlfriend. I don't have anything else for you except I can tell you things will get better, and then things will get worse, and then things will get better, and then things will get worse. And I was mm-hmm. like, that really, that really helped me. <laughs> you know, I believe you completely. Uh, I can see that line of thinking. Uh, yeah. Based on that, maybe if you're speaking to... For example, teenagers out there right now who are going through things and they believe that it's the end of the road or they can't see their way around it. Is there anything you could offer them? Definitely. I had my first big depression when I was 15 and I came out of it, I guess, within a year. However, by the time I was 18, I was thinking, I really want other teenagers to know that you come out of that. It's not the end. And when you're experiencing that for the first time, you don't know that. You don't know that you're going to come out the other end, Mm -hmm. but you do. And maybe you'll get down again, but you'll get up again. You got to get past that critical stage. If they don't have resources or people like yourself, older people, people with life experience who've been through things, they have no one to go to in that respect. It's very, very difficult for them to even envision it. Yes, it's true. They just have to trust and have some faith that so many people have experienced it and got out the other end. Just listening to you say that, probably of great value to anyone listening. I don't preach to people. I like to lead by example. And just just the other day, when as I was going down the street on Broadway in Orangeville with my rollator, you mm-hmm. know, a walker with wheels, yeah. a woman, as she was passing by, slowed down a little bit, and she goes, you go, girl. Because, you know, she could see it wasn't easy for me, but I just kept going. Michelle, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I've not only enjoyed talking with you, uh, you've also kind of uh, rekindled many of my own views and remind me of the things I take for granted. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. You too. Try to keep the walls from falling down I 
The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you.